Part Three, Chapter Two of A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones. Part Three, Chapter Two Public Opinion Formed by Education. Rev. Charles C. Jones, in his interesting work on the religious instruction of Negroes, has a passage which so peculiarly describes that influence of public opinion which we have been endeavoring to illustrate, that we shall copy it. Quote, Habits of feeling and prejudices in relation to any subject are wont to take their rise out of our education or circumstances, Every man knows their influence to be great in shaping opinions and conduct, and oftentimes how unwittingly they are formed, that while we may be unconscious of their existence, they may grow with our growth and strengthen with our strength. Familiarity converts deformity into comeliness. Hence we are not always the best judges of our condition. Another may remark inconveniences, and, indeed, real evils in it, of which we may be said to have been all our lives scarcely conscious. So, also, evils, which upon first acquaintance revolted our whole nature, and appeared intolerable, custom almost makes us forget even to see. Men passing out of one state of society into another encounter a thousand things to which they feel that they can never be reconciled. Yet, shortly after, their sensibilities become dulled. A change passes over them. They scarcely know how. They have accommodated themselves to their new circumstances and relations. They are Romans in Rome. Let us now inquire what are the educational influences which bear upon the mind educated in constant familiarity with the slave system. Take any child of ingenuous mind and of generous heart, and educate him under the influences of slavery, and what are the things which go to form his character? An anecdote which a lady related to the writer may be in point in this place. In giving an account of some of the things which induced her to remove her family from under the influence of slavery, she related the following incident. Looking out of her nursery window one day, she saw her daughter, about three years of age, seated in her little carriage, with six or eight young negro children harnessed into it for horses. Two or three of the older slaves were standing around their little mistress, and one of them, putting a whip into her hand, said, Here, missy, whip em well, make em go, they're all your niggers. What a moral and religious lesson was this for that young soul! The mother was a judicious woman, who never would herself have taught such a thing, but the whole influence of slave society had burnt it into the soul of every negro, and through them it was communicated to the child. As soon as the child is old enough to read the newspapers, he sees in every column such notices as the following from a late Richmond Whig and other newspapers. 
large sale of negroes horses mules cattle and so forth the subscriber under a decree of the circuit superior court for fluvanna county will proceed to sell by public auction at the late residence of william galt deceased on tuesday the thirtieth day of november and wednesday on the first day of december next beginning at eleven o'clock the negroes stock and so forth of all kinds belonging to the estate consisting of one hundred seventy five negroes amongst whom are some carpenters and blacksmiths ten horses thirty three mules one hundred head of cattle one hundred sheep two hundred hogs fifteen hundred barrels of corn oats fodder and so forth the plantation and shop tools of all kinds the negroes will be sold for cash the other property on a credit of nine months the purchaser giving bond with approved security james galt administer of william galt deceased october nineteenth from the nashville gazette november twenty third eighteen fifty two great sale of negroes mules cattle and so forth on tuesday the twenty first day of december next at the plantation of the late n a mcnary on the franklin turnpike on account of mrs c b mcnary's executrix we will offer at public sale fifty valuable negroes these negroes are good plantation negroes and will be sold in families those wishing to purchase will do well to see them before the day of sale also ten fine work mules two jacks and one jenny milch cows and calves cattle dock hogs twelve hundred barrels of corn oats hay fodder and so forth two wagons one cart farming utensils and so forth from the newberry sentinel we see for sale the subscriber will sell at auction on the fifteenth of this month at the plantation on which he resides distant eleven miles from the town of newberry and near the lawrence railroad twenty-two young and likely negroes comprising able-bodied field hands good cooks house servants and an excellent blacksmith about fifteen hundred bushels of corn a quantity of fodder hogs mules sheep neat cattle household and kitchen furniture and other property terms made public on the day of sale m c gary december first lawrenceville herald copy till date of sale from the south carolinian october twenty first eighteen fifty two estate sale of valuable property the undersigned as administrator of the estate of colonel t randall deceased will sell on monday the twentieth december next all the personal property belonging to said estate consisting of fifty six negroes stock corn fodder and so forth and so forth the sale will take place at the residence of the deceased on sandy river ten miles west of chesterville terms of sale the negroes on a credit of twelve months with interest from day of sale and two good sureties the other property will be sold for cash samuel j randall see also the new orleans b october twenty eighth after advertising the landed state of madeline lanou deceased comes the following enumeration of chattels twelve slaves men and women a small quite new schooner a ferrying flatboat some cows calves heifers and sheep 
a lot of household furniture, the contents of a store consisting of hardware, crockery ware, groceries, dry goods, etc. Now suppose all parents to be as pious and benevolent as Mr. Jones, a thing not at all to be hoped for as things are, and suppose them to try their very best to impress on the child a conviction that all souls are of equal value in the sight of God, that the Negro soul is as truly beloved of Christ and ransomed with his blood as the Master's, and is there any such thing as making him believe or realize it? Will he believe that that which he sees every week advertised with hogs and horses and fodder, and cottonseed and refuse furniture, bedstands, tables and chairs, is indeed so divine a thing? We will suppose that the little child knows some pious slave, that he sees them at the communion table partaking in a far-off solitary manner of the sacramental bread and wine. He sees his pious father and mother recognize the slave as a Christian brother. They tell him that he is an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And the next week he sees him advertised in the paper in company with a lot of hogs, stock, and fodder. Can the child possibly believe in what his Christian parents have told him when he sees this? We have spoken now of only the common advertisements of the paper. But suppose the child, to live in some districts of the country, and advertisements of a still more degrading character meet his eye. In the state of Alabama, a newspaper devoted to politics, literature, and education has a standing weekly advertisement of which this is the copy. Notice. The undersigned, having an excellent pack of hounds for trailing and catching runaway slaves, informs the public that his prices in the future will be as follows for such services. For each day employed in hunting or trailing, $2.50. For catching each slave, $10. For going over 10 miles and catching slaves, $20. If sent for, the above prices will be exacted in cash. The subscriber resides one mile and a half south of Dadeville, Alabama. Signed, B. Black. The reader will see, by the print sign at the bottom, that it is a season advertisement, and therefore would meet the eye of the child week after week. The paper from which we have cut this contains amongst its extracts passages from Dickens' Household Words, from Professor Felton's article in the Christian Examiner on the relation of the sexes, and a most beautiful and chivalrous appeal from the eloquent Senator Soleil on the legal rights of women. Now let us ask, since this paper is devoted to education, what sort of an educational influence such advertisements have? And, of course, such an establishment is not kept up without patronage, where there are negro hunters advertised in a paper, there are also negro hunts, and there are dogs being trained to hunt, and all this process goes on before the eyes of children. And what sort of education is it? The writer has received an account of the way in which dogs are trained for this business. 
The information has been communicated to the gentleman who writes it by a negro man, who, having been always accustomed to see it done, described it with as little sense of there being anything out of the way in it as if the dogs had been trained to catch raccoons. It came to the writer in a recent letter from the South. Quote, the way to train em, says the man, is to take this year pups, any kind of pups will do, foxhounds, bulldogs, most any, but take the pups and keep em shut up and don't let em ever see a nigger till they get big enough to be learned. When the pups get old enough to be set on to things, then make em run after a nigger, and when they catches him, give em meat. Tell the nigger to run as hard as he can and get up in a tree so as to learn the dogs to tree him. Then take the shoe of a nigger and learn to find the nigger it belongs to. Then a rag of his clothes and so on. Allers be careful to tree the nigger and teach the dog to wait and bark under the tree till you come up and give him his meat. End quote. See also the following advertisement from the Wichita Register, a newspaper dated Monroe, Louisiana, Tuesday evening, June 1st, 1852. Negro Dogs The undersigned would respectfully inform the citizens of Wichita and adjacent parishes that he has located about two and a half miles east of John White's, on the road leading from Monroe to Bastrop, and that he has a fine pack of dogs for catching Negroes. Persons wishing Negroes caught will do well to give him a call. He can always be found at his stand when not engaged in hunting, and even then information of his whereabouts can always be had of some one on the premises. Terms. Five dollars a day and found when there is no track pointed out. When the track is shown, twenty-five dollars will be charged for catching the Negro. M. C. Goff. Monroe, February 17, 1852. Now, do not all the scenes likely to be enacted under this head form a fine education for the children of a Christian nation? And can we wonder if children so formed see no cruelty in slavery? Can children realize that creatures who are thus hunted are the children of one heavenly father with themselves? But suppose the boy grows up to be a man, and attends the courts of justice, and hears intelligent learned men declaring from the bench that the mere beating of a slave, unaccompanied by any circumstances of cruelty or an attempt to kill, is no breach of the peace of the state. Suppose he hears it decided in the same place that no insult or outrage upon any slave is considered worthy of legal redress unless it impairs his property value. Suppose he hears, as he would in Virginia, that it is the policy of the law to protect the master even in inflicting cruel, malicious, and excessive punishment upon the slave. Suppose a slave is murdered, and he hears the lawyers arguing that it cannot be considered a murder because a slave, in law, is not considered a human being. And then suppose the case is appealed to a superior court and he hears the judge expending his forces on a long and eloquent dissertation to prove that the slave is a human being, at least that he is as much so as a lunatic, an idiot, or an unborn child. 
and that therefore he can be murdered. See Judge Clark's speech on page 75. Suppose he sees that all the administration of law with regard to the slave proceeds on the idea that he is absolutely nothing more than a bale of merchandise. Suppose he hears such language as this, which occurs in the reasonings of the Brazil case, and which is a fair sample of the manner in which such subjects are ordinarily discussed. Quote, the slave has no more political capacity, no more right to purchase, hold, or transfer property than the mule in his plow. He is himself but a mere chattel, the subject of absolute ownership. Close quote. Suppose he sees on the statute book such sentences as these from the Civil Code of Louisiana, Article 2500. The latent defects of slaves and animals are divided into two classes, vices of body and vices of character. Article 2501. The vices of body are distinguished into absolute and relative. Article 2502. The absolute vices of slaves are leprosy, madness, and epilepsy. Article 2503. The absolute vices of horses and mules are short wind, glanders, and founder. The influence of this language is made all stronger on the young mind from the fact that it is not the language of contempt or of passion, but of calm, matter-of-fact legal statement. What effect must be produced on the mind of the young man when he comes to see that, however atrocious and however well-proved be the murder of a slave, the murderer uniformly escapes, and that, though the cases where a slave has fallen a victim to passions of the white are so multiplied, yet the fact of an execution for such a crime is yet almost unknown in the country. Does not all this tend to produce exactly that estimate of the value of Negro life and happiness which Frederick Douglass says was expressed by a common proverb among the white boys where he was brought up? It's worth sixpence to kill a nigger and sixpence more to bury him. We see the public sentiment which has been formed by this kind of education exhibited by the following paragraph from the Cambridge Democrat, Maryland, October 27, 1852. That paper quotes the following from the Woodville Republican of Mississippi. It seems that a Mr. Joshua Johns had killed a slave and had been sentenced, therefore, to the penitentiary for two years. The Republican thus laments his hard lot. State versus Joshua Johns. This cause resulted in the conviction of Johns and his sentence to the penitentiary for two years. Although every member of the jury, together with the bar, and the public generally, signed a petition to the governor for young John's pardon, yet there was no fault to find with the verdict of the jury. The extreme youth of John's, and the circumstances in which the killing occurred, enlisted universal sympathy in his favor. There is no doubt that the negro had provoked him to the deed by the use of insolent language, but how often must it be told that words are no justification for blows? There are many persons, and we regret to say it, who think they have the same right to shoot a negro if he insults them or even runs from them that they have to shoot down a dog. 
but there are laws for the protection of the slave as well as the master and the sooner the above error alluded to is removed the better it will be for both parties the unfortunate youth who has now entailed upon himself the penalty of the law we doubt not had no idea that there existed such penalty and even if he was aware of the fact the repeated insults and taunts of the negro go far to mitigate the crime johns was defended by i d gildart esq who probably did all that could have been effected in his defense the democrat adds we learn from mr curry deputy sheriff of wilkinson county that johns has been pardoned by the governor we are gratified to hear it this error above alluded to of thinking it as innocent to shoot down a negro as a dog is one we fairly admit for which young johns ought not to be severely blamed he has been educated in a system of things of which this opinion is the inevitable result and he individually is far less guilty for it than are the men who support the system of laws and keep up the educational influences which lead southern men directly to this conclusion johns may be for aught we know as generous-hearted and as just naturally as any young man living but the horrible system under which he has been educated has rendered him incapable of distinguishing what either generosity or justice is as applied to the negro the public sentiment of the slave states is the sentiment of men who have been thus educated and in all that concerns the negro it is utterly blunted and paralyzed what would seem to them injustice and horrible wrong in the case of white persons is the coolest matter of course in relation to slaves as this educational influence descends from generation to generation the moral sense becomes more and more blunted and the power of discriminating right from wrong in what relates to the subject race more and more enfeebled thus if we read the writings of distinguished men who were slaveholders about the time of our american revolution what clear views do we find expressed of the injustice of slavery what strong language of reprobation do we find applied to it nothing more forcible could possibly be said in relation to its evils than by quoting the language of such men as washington jefferson and patrick henry in those days there were no men of that high class of mind who thought of such a thing as defending slavery on principle now there are an abundance of the most distinguished men north and south statesmen civilians men of letters even clergymen who in various degrees palliated apologized for or openly defended and what is the cause of this except that educational influences have corrupted public sentiment and deprived them of the power of just judgment the public opinion even of free america with regard to slavery is behind that of all other civilized nations when the holders of slaves assert that they are as a general thing humanely treated what do they mean not that they would consider such treatment humane if given to themselves and their children no indeed but it is humane for slaves they do in effect place the negro below the range of humanity 
and on a level with brutes, and then graduate all their ideas of humanity accordingly. They would not needlessly kick or abuse a dog or a negro. They may pet a dog, and they often do a negro. Men have been found who fancied having their horses elegantly lodged in marble stables, and to eat out of sculptured mangers. But they thought of them as horses still, and with all the indulgence with which good-natured masters sometimes surround the slave, he is to them but a negro still, and not a man. In what has been said in this chapter, and in what appears incidentally in all facts cited throughout this volume, there is an abundant proof that, notwithstanding, there be frequent and most noble instances of generosity toward the negro. And although the sentiment of honorable men and the voice of Christian charity does everywhere protest against what it feels to be inhumanity, yet the popular sentiment engendered by the system must necessarily fall deplorably short of giving anything like sufficient protection to the rights of the slave. It will appear in the succeeding chapters, as it must already have appeared to reflecting minds, that the whole course of educational influence upon the mind of the slave-master is such as to deaden his mind to those appeals which come from the negro as a fellow-man and a brother. End of Part 3, Chapter 2 Public Opinion Formed by Education Recording by William Jones